his chief concern is that he can't police for McFree. This week, the EPS makes their case for a budget increase. It's not compelling. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Dead air. Dead air. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 159. It's the last episode of the season before we get to our regular December finale closure of Jeopardy. And oh boy, Mac, do we have a good slate of Jeopardy guests this year. We've got an amazing lineup this year. We're very excited to welcome three former mayors to the show to play Jeopardy. We've got Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson, Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi, and Red Deer Mayor Tara Veer. All three chose not to run again in this most recent municipal election. They are free agents at the moment, and they've all agreed to come play a challenging game of Jeopardy. You always come up with great questions, Troy. Well, you know, we're already jinxing it with the contestants. We've not yet recorded this, so they could still cancel, and my (laughs) questions could be bad. So (laughs) knock on wood on all of that. You don't have to knock on wood after it's burned because of the rapid fire segment. The Edmonton Oilers are now worth more than a billion U.S. dollars, according to sources who are not Connor McDavid's mom. The team is now worth nearly double the Calgary Flames, who are valued at $680 million, and don't have a boy that I'm so proud of because he really followed his dreams and can skate so fast. This represents a massive return on investment for owner Daryl Cates, who bought the team for $200 million in 2008. But nothing could be so valuable as the time we get to spend together just watching my little guy play. Edmonton Restaurant Range Road was the first dine-in establishment in Edmonton to require a deposit for reservations when they implemented the policy back in October. The restaurant sought to eliminate no-shows, which were becoming problematic for their business, and has seen resounding success in the implementation, with only three total no-shows since the policy was implemented. Other industries are taking note, specifically with local Taproot Edmonton podcasts speaking municipally, taking a look at their listener stats and seeing all you goddamn subscribers that so casually listen to the episode whenever you feel like it, like we don't pour our heart and souls into making this thing that you care so little about that some of you are waiting nearly five hours from release until you drag your lazy, unappreciative little ears into a pair of headphones to suffer through the chore of engaging in your civic democracy. Oh, what a hard life for you. Your invoice is in the mail. The city of Edmonton announced that outdoor rinks are open for the season. 2021 marks the first year where rinks are managed through an innovative new strategy of not doing snow and ice control, adding 12,800 kilometers of recreational ice services overnight. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, which acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing, and this year the focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. So, Mac, I opened up the uh, planning document today in preparation for the podcast, and I saw 70 pages of notes. <laughs> so that can only mean one thing, and that's, I think, council started debating the police budget. Yes, they had a presentation from uh, the police commission and the police chief on Wednesday this week to hear about 
why they think they should continue to receive the same level of funding they've received in the past, or maybe even a little bit more. So they were at council, they made a a very long presentation, and Police Chief Dale McPhee had lots of really interesting things to say. And I found myself wondering, Troy, if the police chief should really be the person making this presentation to council. Clearly, we know he's going to argue for more money. That's his job, essentially. But we're supposed to have a police commission in between these things for lots of different reasons. It, it, it felt a bit strange that the, the chief of police is the, the cheerleader and the one that's trying to convince council about all this stuff. A bit lower stakes, but it reminds me of when council was debating the need for metal detectors and a pony wall in council chambers to amp up their security. And the people giving the presentation were the company wanting to sell them metal detectors and pony walls. Yeah. So, Mac, let's dig into this. I think where we'll start is where did the police start? What was... Dale McVie coming into council and asking for. What the police have asked for is essentially to continue on with the funding formula that the previous council had approved. They have tweeted some things to the effect of, we are not looking for an increase. We just want to see the amount of money that was promised to us under the funding formula, which is intentionally misleading because, of course, the funding formula guarantees an increase every year. The police chief talked about this in his presentation as well. And I have to say his presentation was quite detailed. There was a lot of information, a lot of statistics and infographics. It was actually quite a long presentation. And at first I thought, wow, this is great. They're bringing lots of information. And I quickly realized that there was a strategy behind it. And I'm quite certain the strategy was confuse everyone so that People throw up their hands and we continue to get our increase. I mean, that has to be the takeaway, given how they talked about crime stats going up and down, how they talked about a decrease. No, it's not a decrease. It's an increase, but it's not really an increase. It's like it's very confusing for the average Edmontonian. And it was very confusing for many of the counselors. So let's talk a little bit about some of this confusion that we've seen, because I think it's fair to say that. I don't know exactly what's going on, having listened to both counsel and the police and read the police statements. All of them appear to be a little bit different. I think that's what counsel felt as well. So they started out the presentation talking about crime stats and talking about crime stats this year. And Dale McPhee said, overall, crime has increased 2% across the city, but it's increased 16% downtown. Downtown is not downtown. Downtown is the EPS district that includes a seven or eight neighborhoods. Uh, you know, if I was the the BIA for downtown, I might encourage the police to call it central or something because uh, never never sounds good when people are talking about downtown. Anyway, the point is they're talking about increase in crime in the central uh, district of sixteen percent in the last year. Later in the presentation, then. Dale McPhee said that Edmonton's total crime rate between 2018 and 2020 dropped 17%. He said property crime dropped 12%. Violent crime dropped 6%. The severity of crime dropped by 11%. So he started out saying there's an increase, and then 20 minutes later, half an hour later, he's talking about how there's all these decreases. And counselors, as you can imagine, were quite confused. And Aaron Rutherford asked about this. At the beginning of the presentation, you said there was a 16% increase in crime in the downtown and then 2% overall across the city. And then at the end, 
of the presentation, there was a lot of uh, stats and numbers on the decrease in the crime rates. So again, I'm, I'm just wanting to, to understand those stats because it seems to be contradictory stats to me. Didn't get a very clear answer. And then Andrew Knack also asked about this. And he- I'm eight years in and I still don't know how to measure if we're getting the results that we need. I don't know what metrics we should be using. I don't know how to determine if we're getting good value for money. And I'm struggling with this as I have been for years. And I'm just wondering from a, maybe from a commission perspective, from a, from a service perspective, how do we finally create clear measures that we can follow and track? And the response to Councillor Knack and to Aaron Rutherford and the rest of the, the councillors who asked about this confusing question of what are the real numbers here? Why is there an increase and a decrease? Was there's a constellation of measures that they need to look at. And oh, by the way, you can't compare to any other jurisdiction because they all do it differently. They use the phrase apples and oranges a couple of times. This is where I come to the conclusion that they're an intentional strategy here is to make sure that people are confused about this stuff. Well, I think there's no more clear example than the fact that this was a verbal report. Why didn't the EPS deliver a report to council if they truly want to be the majority of the tax increase for the year, doesn't that warrant writing a Word document? Why don't we have a table with these stats and measures? If not, to say one thing earlier in the presentation and say another thing when, you know, the presentation is talking about something else. I think the EPS is just trying to have it both ways by sowing confusion and allowing themselves to feel good in the moment, say something that feels good, and then in counselor's memory might be good, but without the actual problem of comparison, of holding them to their words, of actual accountability. Right. Absolutely. This is all data that should be in the open data catalog. There's no reason that this data could not be made available to citizens and to journalists to make sure we're talking about the true facts here insofar as the police are the ones who collect this data. Right. So we've got to trust that they're reporting the data accurately. All of the data questions aside, what this kind of is based on, the reason they're talking about this at all, is the suggestion that there's a connection between the level of funding for your police service and the amount of crime that your city experiences. And Councillor Ann Stevenson asked about this right away when she started her five minutes. She said, quote, I'm, I'm struggling with the conversation of, of funding and then crime outcomes. And I know that maybe sounds silly because obviously the work you do is directly related to, to crime. But I don't, I feel that a line is being drawn between between funding and crime levels. And I don't know that that relationship exists. And, and maybe I'm incorrect, but I mean, is there is there evidence that as funding increases, crime decreases? Or is there a different relationship between those? I think it's the use, how you use the money. And his bigger argument here is that while crime has increased a little bit this year, over the last couple of years, it's decreased. And the reason that it's decreased is because they've funded some new strategies and initiatives and they're doing things differently. So given that, it was a bit bizarre to kind of hear him indicate that if they didn't get the increase that they're expecting, or if worse, they got an actual true decrease that they would have to reduce service levels. And the things they would cut are the very programs, potentially at least, that are the things that have resulted in this decrease in crime. 
That reminds me of the last time. Back when that was happening in the summer, the police had some pretty choice quotes where, you know, if we were to defund the police because of union seniority, the people who we would fire are all people of color. And this comment rings exactly the same. It's like, you know, that's that's some really nice community-minded programming you have right there. Sure would be a shame if that got cut. You want to fund another helicopter? Am I wrong? Is this extortion? It certainly felt like the police chief was, you know, at least making a veiled threat about this. He talked about uh, the 11 million, right, that was redistributed from the Edmonton police budget, the last of which you'll recall in a recent episode, they only just recently decided where to allocate. And the chief questioned what measurable community safety outcomes have been achieved as a result. What can we confidently say has improved? Like, we haven't even done anything with all of that money yet, and he's he's questioning it. So he kind of had this two-sidesism going the whole time. Another example of that uh, is that he says a lot of the things you would expect, you know, the critics of the police to feel like, you know, maybe we're on the right track here. He says, you know, we need to have better integration of these services, these services that are outside the police, you know, the coordinated funding needs to be there to allow them to do the things that they do well. And then on the other hand, he says... Let me make it abundantly clear. Edmonton has a crime problem that's existed for many years. And he said moving money around won't fix it. So he definitely wants to have it both ways. So there's been a clear line of, I'll say, intentional obfuscation. But I think no one in the Twitterverse where I'm existing and talking about this is convinced To what extent is the EPS influenced by that? It seems like the EPS isn't reaching out an olive branch to discuss the other side. How can we work with you? It seems like the EPS has a sort of scorched earth method of dealing with the quote unquote other side, the people who want to talk about reallocation of police funding. Is that a fair assessment? I don't know if it's scorched earth, but they certainly want to make it seem like the majority are on their side and perhaps the silent majority. Dale McPhee, the police chief, said something a few times during his presentation and in in answering questions from counselors. He kept complaining about social media rhetoric. He was trying to convey the idea that he thinks the majority of Edmontonians agree with him about where funding should go and how the police should do what they do and and all of that. And that the only people who disagree, the only people who don't get it, are some social media trolls. It was like a, a, a derogatory kind of hand wave for all of his critics, and he used it a few times. So I have to think that it was pretty intentional for him to, to make that case. I mean, EPS has never been the most, uh, what's the opposite of tone deaf, Troy? responsive, (laughs) community-minded. Yeah, when it comes to Twitter and social media, right, they've made some baffling decisions in the past. So, you know, it's kind of rich, actually, for him to just dismiss social media like that. It's not like they're experts either. Okay, sure. I mean, some of this was to be expected. I didn't think we would go into this expecting that the police is like, yeah, you know what? Right. Could you please cut $150 million from our budget? Totally. I think now that we're talking about things that were expected, we have to talk about the most expected thing that comes up with every police budget discussion. Let's talk about the helicopters. Oh, my favorite topic. (laughs) As you know, Tri, I have not been a fan of the helicopter for years in this city. I think there's no better standard bearer for police waste in the city than the helicopter. Because, you know, people who 
fervently support the police are like, we need this helicopter to catch these criminals who are speeding on Jasper Ave or something. And people who oppose the helicopter, like you in blog posts for, I don't know, 25 years, <laughs> will say things like, why do we need something so flagrantly frivolous and so expensive? What did council have to say about the helicopter? Yeah, I, I agree with you that there's it's sort of the standard bearer, although there might be an armored vehicle that has something to say about that now. <laughs> it doesn't anymore because of a stump. <laughs> True enough. The helicopter definitely came up. Chief McPhee said, it's unreal just how effective a tool it is because it's got infrared. And then he caught himself and said, and stuff. And we use it in a lot of our car chases. Like he was about to sort of talk about all the features and the bells and whistles and then thought that maybe isn't a good idea. And then said, you know, we have a lot of car chases. And the main argument for the helicopter is that it gives us this overhead view of what's going on. And it purportedly allows the police to, instead of chasing that car in a car, wait until that car is somewhere else more safe and then, you know, go in and try to engage that that individual or whatever. So he said, quote, It's just been great eyes and ears to solve a, a tremendous amount of crime. It's absolutely uh, worth any investment because I can't even imagine how many cars you would need going in the direction that this covers all by just being overhead. It's, uh, yeah, it's a very, very effective crime tool. The first thing I thought is he's clearly never heard of satellite imagery or drones or any of these other things that would seem to me to accomplish the same thing, eyes and ears up above an overhead view. Maybe that really is important to the work that they're doing, but for far less money. I don't know that the EPS has ever been about the actual most innovative and economic solution. I have to wonder, though, you know, a drone is a drone. It can do infrared and quote unquote stuff. <laughs> but if you're in a basement with a joystick piloting a drone, that feels a lot less cool than getting in the chopper and really being a macho guy flying the helicopter and chasing down this car, shouting over the loudspeaker, pull over, pull over. Do you think that sort of macho bravado plays into this a little bit? I do. I do think that's a big part of the helicopter, the armored vehicle, and all these other gadgets and gear that the police have. The helicopter was talked about in that way by counselors this time. So there were some police commissioners. One of the commissioners said, you know, I have to tell you, when I joined the commission, I was very skeptical about the helicopter. And then I got into the helicopter and I got to ride it and my view changed. And Karen Principe, who brought this up, said, well, if you're given rides, I'd love to go for a ride in the helicopter. And later, when he had the time to question the police chief, Councillor Tim Cartmel also said, well, if you're doing fly-alongs, count me in. I've always wanted to go on a fly-along. Really? Is that a good use of taxpayer money, flying councillors around so they can see the bells and whistles of this macho gadget? Ironically, Karen Principe's main campaign strokes was returning her vehicle allowance that she gets as a councillor to the residents of her ward. Can I tell you? Helicopter <laughs> rides cost a little more than driving around a car. I think so. Towards the end of his comments, Chief Police Dale McPhee said that there were three main issues affecting the city and ostensibly said, you know, to combat these issues, the police need more money. The police need to have this consistent funding formula increase. I think this was the greatest example for me of the fundamental disconnect and why this discussion with the chief of police is so difficult, because as he was saying them, 
my mind was going, you're making the best possible argument for police defunding. (laughs) Absolutely. It's not what he hopes you're thinking. It's not gun crime or any of those kinds of things. Earlier in the discussion, actually, they talked about that decrease in severe crimes, but the severity of the ones we have has actually gone up. No, they didn't even talk about that as the reason why they need more funding. The three things that Chief McPhee highlighted are mental health and addictions, trauma, and domestic violence. None of these things should be handled by the police. Sorry, was that too loud? (laughs) For everyone in the back, these are not police issues. These are not things that the police service is best equipped to deal with, and it's not where our funding should be going. As we're recording this on Thursday, December 9th, council has not made a decision yet. Are you a betting man? What do you think is going to happen here? Do you think the police are going to get their 0.7% of the tax levy increase to get their funding formula? Do you think we're going to get a freeze? Do you think we're going to get a cut? What do you think is going to happen? I don't think we're going to get a decrease. Uh, I think at best we're going to get a freeze uh, in this case. I think what council is going to say is we have this report coming back next year on What are some alternatives to the EPS funding formula? I think they're probably going to be keen to wait for that before they make any large changes. So I'm a bit pessimistic about the idea of them doing anything more than, you know, maybe a freeze on not getting that increase, freezing it where it is currently. If I had to guess, that's probably what's going to happen. I do think we'll see some of the councillors try to make some moves in the direction that uh, I think you and I would like them to go. I think they will try to bring some things to the table that will be more critical of the police budget and the amount of funding that they get. I just don't know that those things are going to be successful. Uh, We'll start to hear them make decisions about the budget as you're listening to this on Friday, December 10th, as well as next week. And the other thing that's interesting they're doing next week is interviewing potential commissioners for the police commission. They're scheduled to do that on Monday, December 13th. I'm not sure they should be doing that during the budget discussion, but (laughs) they are. I think if I was going to bet, I think we are going to get a freeze for the police budget. I think we're going to decrease their increase. But I do think what we'll get is a lot of subsequent motions, a lot of requests for reports, things that next year will allow them to make more significant shifts on the police budget. Uh, I think I've been surprised so far this term with council with just how much action councillors are taking and how many reports and initiatives these councillors are requesting right off the bat. Right. So that's police. Uh, But this week, the city of Edmonton, they made some moves. Uh, Rather than using police resources to keep people out of a bike lane, they decided, hey, you know what's a better use of our money, better use of our time? Let's close a bike lane that's been open for three months with concrete bricks. 40 of them. (laughs) Yeah. Aren't bike lanes just the gift that keeps on giving Troy? Every week, it seems like we've got something to talk about. This week, it wasn't cars parked in the bike lane. It was these concrete barriers, as you say, that were installed along the 110th Street bike lane. And the social media uproar on this was predictably swift and harsh. Some of the councillors, such as Michael Jans, were quick to say, oh, this is really terrible. This does not live up to our principles. And when asked about this, the city said that the reason that they installed these concrete barriers was to ensure the safety of those who bike or drive along this corridor. It was determined that the bike lane should be temporarily closed for use until appropriate signage is installed. So they put these barricades there 
so they could add signs at some point? It would seem to me you could put signs there without closing the bike lane, no? We could break this down a lot, but I think the fundamental takeaways here are this is a clear-cut example of the city treating people who aren't in cars as second-class citizens. Right. You could not imagine the city of Edmonton saying, hey, you know, we have to install one of those curb medians you know, the little signs that have a little black dot with an arrow going mm-hmm. around. We need to install one of those signs. So we're going to barricade the white mud <laughs> just just for 25 hours. That wouldn't happen. It's just frankly impossible. The city throughout this entire process has continued their trend of doing poor things, but then doubling down and lying about it. That's the real kicker here because this wasn't just you know some contractors decided that we needed some signs so they closed the bike lane they put up some rose closed signs the city of edmonton official twitter account and the uh, website of the city of edmonton said that there was an emergency bike lane closure because of this safety emergency this bike lane has been open for about three months now at what point does not having signs constitute an emergency and why isn't it an emergency three months later that's a very like long leg time on that emergency it doesn't sound like an emergency to me the other thing that caught my eye about is what you said at the top they didn't just put a concrete barrier at the beginning and you know each block or there was a ton of barriers along that bike lane that must have taken some labor uh, and manpower to go and install like why why are they so aggressive about it, do you think? Why are they treating this as an emergency and going all in on closing this lane? If it's to keep drivers out of the bike lanes, we've done this for years now. Don't put the concrete barriers perpendicular to the bike lane. Put it parallel so that cyclists can go in and out and cars cannot. Right. Like This is a solved problem. Mm. That is what makes this seem so malicious. This seems to me because we just had the snafu on 88th Ave with vehicles parking the bike lane. To me, this feels like a couple bros in a transportation operations department said, you hurt our egos. You embarrassed us on 88th Ave in this neighborhood as we were doing this construction. We're going to punish the cyclists in Edmonton by being malicious. That's my read of the situation. Well, you reached out to the city, right? To ask them more information about this. And I suspect they were helpful. (laughs) So I gave them a list of seven questions, all which were perfectly reasonable questions. And I didn't expect an answer to any of them. Uh, The city did actually respond to my inquiry without answering any of the questions. Roughly my questions were, why did this happen? Why was this designated an emergency? And what are the criteria that we have for designated emergencies? Right. How was this solution foreclosure developed? And is this standard practice? Because, you know, it shouldn't be. And my other questions were, what is the oversight here? Because for something like this to happen, does it need to be approved? Like if there is an emergency closure of a road piece of road infrastructure doesn't it have to cross a manager's desk don't they have to okay that the city gave me no answers to that nor did they give me any answers on uh the cost to install roughly 40 big pieces of jersey block concrete which you can see video 
on CTV of them removing. It requires a forklift, several trucks, many, many city of Edmonton staff. Like this is a non-trivial expense. Right. And for 25 hours, that was the entire closure period. And I think the biggest question that the city of Edmonton is completely ignoring, and I think is most insidious is, if you had the capability of solving this problem in 25 hours, why didn't you? If they had the signs on hand to just drill into the concrete, how is it easier to move 40 concrete jersey blocks twice in a single day than just drilling in a couple signs? Exactly. This is my question off the top. Like, why didn't they just install the signs? I think in this case, we're not going to get answers on this question. I think the city is calling this done and likely they're hoping people will forget about it. But like you said off the top, Councillor Michael Jans, the Councillor for Papasteo, the word that this is in, has been active on this file. And now he's got two upcoming motions to address related items. Uh, the first of which being a motion asking for some more information on active transportation equity during construction projects. This is just invariably, we know that if you do not drive a car in Edmonton, you are not treated the same. You are mm. a second class citizen. This is just a truth in our city and something that doesn't align with the city plan. So hopefully we'll get some answers on that and we'll get some answers hopefully of exactly how this prioritization happened, exactly how this closure came to fruition. What was the approval process and how can we change our systems thinking so that it never happens again? But the other part, and I think this is more exciting to me, is just as we're recording about half an hour ago, uh, the councillor posted on his blog that he plans to ask for four and a half million dollars during the budget deliberations for planning projects on active transportation infrastructure and sidewalk missing links for design during this budget this supplemental budget adjustment such that we can design things and that way when we request capital dollars next year, it's ready for shovels in the ground, which is really exciting and actual movement. Yeah, not kicking this to the next capital budget, but actually adjusting the last year of this current four-year capital budget to get things rolling. I think that would be fantastic. It's another example, as uh, as you said earlier, of councillors on this new council seeming to want to take some action, asking for information, but also uh, putting some some policies out there. You remember when we uh, did the introduction to Michael Jans and he said he's going to be the uh, support player not scoring any goals? Yeah. Really hard for politicians to keep their egos in check, isn't it? <laughs> hey, sometimes Connor McDavid scores. He, he sends a lot of assists over to Leon, but, you know, he scores once in a while too. Yeah, yeah if your argument is that sometimes Connor McDavid scores, <laughs> I think the metaphors become mixed. <laughs> you know, one of the most exciting things about this funding of missing links for active transportation is we have so many places in the city that we know are unsafe. And I'm excited about the motion to remedy some of those because you live downtown, you know, we know that Jasper Avenue and 109th Street is an example of a patently unsafe inter intersection. We knew about it during Imagine Jasper Ave. City administration knew about it when they proposed safety solutions. And then they also knew about it when they undid those safety solutions because drivers complained about being inconvenienced. And this week, the tragic but inevitable happened when the driver on an ETS bus hit a woman in a crosswalk at 109th Street and Jasper Ave. And there was video of the event. It's, I don't know if you've seen it. I came across it and it's, it's really shocking stuff. She was quite violently thrown out of the crosswalk and that's scary and so preventable. This is a 32 year old woman. It was 2 PM 
in the afternoon. So it's not like it was dark. She was treated on the scene and thankfully just had minor injuries and was later released from hospital. But I do want to say thank you, Troy, for saying what you just did there, which is that it was the driver of an ETS bus that hit this woman. Reminds me of last week, unfortunately, a little bit further down Jasper Avenue, there was a 77-year-old woman who was hit by the driver of an SUV and she died on scene. This was also afternoon, another unsafe location on our main street. And the police and the mainstream media continue to talk about buses and cars striking these pedestrians and killing them. It is the drivers of these vehicles that are the ones that actually are piloting the big hunk of metal that kills or injures pedestrians on our streets. And I think it's really important to use the correct language for that, not only because we have to make it clear that there's a person operating that vehicle, but because in the near future, there may actually be vehicles not operated by humans. And having that distinction, I think, is going to become increasingly important. That's a little bit of a digression, but I did want to say I think it's important that we use the right language here. Um, and so horrible two examples. It's frustrating. It is frustrating, but not as frustrating as this intersection, which we knew to be unsafe, we knew there was a solution to, and we chose not to do it. And now innocent people are bearing the consequences of our driver culture. Cold drafts, flickering lights, and where's that leak coming from? If you've ever wondered what's really going on in your home, Rumi's Ask a Home Inspector service can help. Connect with a certified professional home inspector by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or when you might need to call in some professional help. You can visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. Well, that's all for this week and probably this season. Mac, um, it's episode 159. We've done it. This is year three, four. Four, year four. Four, 160 coming up with three mayors. Don't miss it. You won't want to miss that Jeopardy episode unless it turns out bad, in which case, skip it. It's fine. <laughs> Until our Jeopardy episode, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.